The gospel lesson is taken from John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This is the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Hear then the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken, the word of the Lord. Maybe some of you remember this name, Carol Channing, singer, actress. Uh, she starred on Broadway for many years. Uh, maybe you're old enough to remember uh, gentlemen prefer blondes and hello, Dolly. Uh, she's still living, uh, the last I heard, and uh, I know that she has to be uh, well into her 90s. As part of her nightclub act, she used to take questions from the audience. And on one occasion, one man asked her this question. Do you remember your most embarrassing moment? The, the most embarrassing moment that you ever had. Cheryl Canning simply looked at him, responded, and responded, yes, I do. Next question. <laughs> I suppose if you have really, really, really been embarrassed, you are not uh, very eager to share it with others. You might share some fairly embarrassing moments, but not the really, really embarrassing moments. And I got to thinking about that when I read that. This seems to me in some ways to apply to our text today for reasons uh, that... Uh, uh, it's difficult to explain. Uh, maybe you can. Uh, this passage seems to embarrass a lot of people. Now, if you read commentators and people who talk about Christianity, let's say on public television, someone may ask, what, what, is, what was Jesus like? Oh, well, he was meek and mild. He, uh, he was a pacifist. And it's a shame that uh, so much killing is going on in his name today. So many Christians are so violent, ignoring two-thirds of the world, of course. The Christians are the problem. They're not like their founder. 
Well, they forget something. They only have half the picture. If you begin to read the New Testament in an honest way and a full way, you get the picture of a man who was no shrinking violet. Moreover, uh, you get the picture that he was quite a man. He was not fearful. He was able to stand his ground. He was absolutely secure in the company in which he was in. Now, this is our Lord. You say, well, he was divine. Yes, but he was human. And today, as we focus on this, we should never be embarrassed if Jesus calls down the judgment of God upon those who are hard-hearted or if he cleanses the temple and actually makes cords and drives the money changers out of the temple. And I want to uh, point out why. We have lost a sense of standing up for that which is right in our society. Now, the world does. Don't make me wrong. I'm talking about standing up for Christianity. Uh, we, we seem to get the impression that, well, you know, we don't want to be like a certain religion that takes offense at everything. And that's true. We don't. We're not that way. Jesus did, us, did teach us to turn the other cheek. But also, that's only half the picture. You may turn the other cheek when it matters only to you and you are personally insulted. But what about the Christian community when it is defamed? All the time we put up with a great deal. Maybe much of it we should put up with. But there are times and there are issues when we should take a stand, stand up, and speak out and take action. Now, let me look at this text with you. As you turn into this, you, you, you see that Jesus does something that most people think is very uncharacteristic of him. Well, let me say, I don't think that is the case. Here is why. Remember that the actions of Jesus... And this is a crucial point, and sometimes our, our, our most ardent Bible-believing Christians do not appreciate this. But the actions of Jesus, in fact, are the actions of the triune God. What he said and what he did reflects the character of God. Now, this was such an embarrassment in the Old Testament that very on, a man like Marcion, for instance, in the second century, decided that the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was more akin to the devil. After all, he hated and he sent down his wrath and judgment. But here is the God of the New Testament as represented by Jesus Christ. Now, he had to eliminate a lot of texts. And by the way, one of them that he eliminated was John chapter 2. But he finally was able to carve himself a God who was meek and mild and didn't judge anyone. No judgment. No wrath. No. After all, this God is the God of love. And his conception of love would... Never, never in a million years, it seems, include something like wrath or judgment or anger. Well, remember that for Orthodox Christians, those who truly believe the scriptures, 
believe that the actions of Jesus reflect the heart and character of the divine trinity. Now, I, for one, can never accept what some people say that Jesus was a pacifist. Uh, I'm sure he was a peaceful man. He came full of peace. No one exhibited in all of human history what shalom really means more than Jesus did. But I don't see him being a milk and toast and a pacifist. And there seems to be a consensus even among biblical scholars that Jesus was a kind of a pacifist. Now, Jesus really did teach us how to respond uh, to things. You should not be overly concerned about personal insults, let me tell you. You should not be overly eager to defend yourself when it comes to make people making charges against you. That, that is of no consequence. But there are times and there are issues when you have to stand up. Did not our forefathers stand up against slavery? Are we not now largely in the Christian community, particularly in evangelical circles, standing up against the culture of death? We absolutely, and I hope you are on board, oppose abortion and we oppose infanticide and those things which, of course, are an abomination to God. Uh, We seek justice tempered with mercy. But there are things that we stand up against as Christians. We must stand up against certain things. I hope you stand up against those who are persecuting Christians around the world. This is the greatest un covered phenomenon in the world today, how many Christians are being rooted out of their family, their homes, their countries. Only one-third of the number of Christians that were in Iraq, only one-third remained there. They've all been driven out even while we have been there. And it seems that we were not interested enough to protest to that government because we had other interests. It's an abomination what is going on in Egypt and many countries around the world in North Korea. And we don't raise a voice. We have and must raise a voice when we see brothers and sisters suffering such indignity and abuse. Uh, We have to raise our voice concerning the, the, the encroaching state on Religious liberty, it's a serious issue. Much more serious than most people realize. We have got some things in the wind here that are, that are very, very, very threatening. And you as a Christian citizen, our church is not going to be out in the forefront here as such, but you as a Christian citizen ought to take that seriously. There are times when we need to stand up. Jesus stood up for something that had to be addressed. Notice it was not his personal insult. He allowed himself to be smacked on the face at the end of his life and did not return in kind. But when the honor and worship of God had been interfered with, when the temple had been turned into a house of merchandise, He spoke up. He spoke up. He spoke up. Now that means that this is an important matter. 
If you read the cleansing of the temple, you might get the impression that there are two cleansings because it appears in all four Gospels. The three of them in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar, and they place it at the end of Jesus' ministry. But John here in this chapter places it at the beginning. Now, you, you can have one or two solutions to this. Uh, that is that there are two, two cleansings, and that seems to, to uh, easily satisfy any so-called discrepancy. That Jesus be, did it at the beginning of his ministry and the end. Maybe he did. I prefer this explanation, though, that there was only one cleansing, but John takes that account and puts it at the beginning of his discussion of Jesus' ministry because he wants us to know exactly what Jesus is like and who he is. And he wants us to see his character. Make no mistake, this one who is the so-called meek and mild and who will go to his death on a cross is one who stood up for the justice of God. And I think that is an important lesson here. We are seeing the character of God Almighty on display very early in Jesus' ministry. This comes after changing the water into wine. This is telling us who Jesus is. Right up front, John is telling us who Jesus is, what he is like. And so when we get to this, look what he did. He made a whip made out of cords. He drove the money changers out, the sheep and the cattle, and scattered the doves. He turned over the tables and scattered the money. Now, this raises a point that I want to explore a bit. Here on display is the righteous anger of God. The same God we find in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is an important account because it is identifying the Jesus of the New Testament as being the God of the Old Testament. There is no difference. No difference. He loves justice. He desires that his house be a house of prayer. Now, there was nothing wrong in some ways with the activities that these people were carrying out. It's just that it was in worship space. They had taken over the temple in merchandising. They could have done it outside the temple precincts. It would have been fine. But where was a lowly Gentile, for instance, to come in and the, in the outer courts to pray? Where would he find a place to pray? And the constant chatter and the constant uh, activity going on when people are trying to worship the true and the living God. You know, this, this, is, this is an important matter. The highest activity that you will ever engage in in life is the worship of the divine being. If you read the works of Jonathan Edwards, you see that almost on every page. That's what sets him apart from everyone else almost. His sense of the majesty and the presence of God Almighty. And you read his meditations and you are overwhelmed. You almost think, and I did it one time when I was a college student reading Jonathan Edwards, I thought the man was crazy with God on the brain. I wasn't a Christian, but to me, he looked like an unbalanced man. He looked like a man who, who uh, needed to be 
dealt with. He didn't seem to to be all there. Uh, He was God-intoxicated. And and it it disturbed, I can remember the whole class, over 100 students in a freshman lecture class, and the teacher agreed with us. This man was not sane. Oh, how wrong we were. How wrong we were. He just understood the majesty and the glory of God and his claim upon his life. Your life is not your own, you know. You've been bought with a price. And he understood to glorify God in his body was his duty and privilege. Moreover, notice what he did when he drove them out of the temple. He not only depicts the righteous anger of God, but he's telling us something about God and his judgment. My friend, God does judge. I know that modern man does not really believe in the judgment of God, and a lot of Christians don't either. The mainline denominations are committing a grave sin against God, and they are emptying their pews because they've ceased to believe in a God who will actually take sin seriously and judge. You know, we've come to believe in some quarters, not in the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the grandfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a sentimental old man sitting there who wouldn't judge a thing and put up with everything, and in some ways too weak to respond. But we are called to believe upon the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called upon to believe in him. And I have quoted H. Richard Neaver to you before. My wife says, you you quote the same people too much. Well, if I do, forgive me. Some of you haven't heard this quote. It's a great quote. It's the greatest quote I know in the Christian ministry. But let me say it again. And uh, you can write it down. Some of you asked me to write write it after the service, but you can write it down now. I'm going to quote it from memory. Listen to this. Describing modern liberal tendencies and liberal theology, H. Richard Niebuhr said this, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. End of quote. What has he just described? He's just described the modern Christian. Many modern Christians cannot bring themselves to believe that there is such a thing as the wrath and judgment of God Almighty. That he will put up with anything and everything I do because he is love. My friend, God will judge you. He will judge you. He must. Because he's not only a loving God, but he is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And his love requires that he set things right. That's what justice is. Setting things right. Anything that threatens his good creation, he finally, in the end, will set things right through the redemption that is provided for us in Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to save us from our sins. But he also died to set all things in order. Read Romans 8. 
It's even for nature to be set back into its ordinary pattern. He died for people, for individuals, but he died for society too. And one day we shall see what a holy society is when we live under him in his reign. No, Jesus drove these uh, people out of the temple precincts because they had crossed the line and they obscured the worship of God. And it would be only a matter of time till they entirely lost their way. Now, why did Jesus cleanse the temple then? That's one reason. But if you look at this passage of Scripture, he clearly says that they were turning sacred space into a market. They were turning sacred space into a market. Do we really believe in sacred space today? I ask you that. This is sacred space, isn't it? I can remember with Ed Schrader and a few others, Paul, we all assembled here and we dedicated this place to the Lord and had prayer. We've got a picture somewhere around here. Some of you all can see it. It's sacred space. It's not a warehouse. In your sacred time, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, you have an appointment in sacred space to worship the divine. And in one reason, what, what that is so important, it gets your mind off yourself and it gets your mind on the most important thing in all of life. We need sacred time and we need sacred space. We absolutely need it. Now, this is prophetic in a way. Jesus also is talking about merchandising sacred space, but he's also talking about another kind of temple. And also, prophetically, that this temple will be destroyed. Maybe the greater reason he cleansed the temple was as an illustration to show them that this temple would be destroyed. And then he links that temple that they are all in and filling up commercially everything. He links it to himself. He said, they said, give us a sign that this is going to happen. And he says, well, I'll give you a sign. And he talks them to himself, destroy this temple and it will be raised in three days. And they said, oh no, 46 years it took to build this temple. You can't destroy it in a day. Well, it was almost destroyed in a day, wasn't it? But he was primarily referring to himself. This is a kind of prophetic sign as well. Sacred space, though, you know, we have to honor that. This is, to be, this is not an expensive building. I, I would be embarrassed to tell some of you now how little we spend on this. I would be embarrassed to tell you. But it's a nice space, isn't it? It's a wonderful place to come. It's simple. And I think it has its own simplicity that is beautiful. Very modest. We're not talking about elegance. We didn't have the resources. We did the best with what we could and what we had. But it's an important place. And I hope that all of us will treat, for instance, our sanctuary in that way. It's called a sanctuary for a reason. I sometimes find things... uh, it bothers me a little bit. It's a pet peeve, not a big deal, but you'll find 
carelessness and chewing gum here and there, and I say, well, that's just the way we all are. I've done it myself. But then I think, you know, this is a sacred place. It's a space God has given to us, the narthex. It's not a dumping ground. It's, it's a sacred space too. Maybe our Sunday school classes are not in the same sense. But we need that, don't we? We need it. We need sacred time. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. While the Christian Sabbath, so to speak, or the Lord's Day is not the same as the Jewish Sabbath, it's still an important time to be assembled together. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And we all need that. We need that. Finally, there is a, if you will, an application to Christ and redemption. If you notice, Jesus does link this to his body. And in all the gospel appearances of this story, it happens just before Holy Week, before he is taken to the cross, nailed upon the cross, and suffers and dies for you and for me. He cleansed the temple. And when he cleansed the temple, he was being prophetic of his own death and resurrection. You know, I like this text that comes in this time of the year. We're looking forward to Easter, aren't we? This speaks at least to this as well, that we would indeed focus our mind upon that one who has redeemed us. He has given himself as a sign that God loves this world. Notice what the book of Romans says. God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that Christ died for us, according to the scriptures. We get to the place sometimes where we think, no one cares for my soul. My friend, you cannot read the Gospels and say, no one cares for your soul. We do struggle. We do suffer. But we are identified with one who came to our side, the great divide, and entered into our suffering. You know, there are lots of sophisticated arguments that people want to try to give when the question comes up, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow me to suffer? Why do I have to go through this tremendous pain? Veil of tears. And the truth is, I don't know altogether. It is sometimes is an absolute mystery to me. But I do know this, that when I look at the cross, it begins to make sense. For that one, the Lord of glory, came into this world and subject, subjected himself to awful misery and suffering and pain. And he felt it to a degree that you and I cannot, for he was infant and innocent at the same time. Someone asked me recently, do you believe Mel Gibson's film of some years ago was over the top in the beating that Jesus took? And I said to the person, I really don't think so. I really don't think so. Notice how the world howled 
when he produced that movie. What was over the top is people's refusal to accept it. It is in the cross of Christ, says the hymn writer, I glory. And why does he glory? Because it is in that temple, the cross of Christ, that we are redeemed and have hope. My friend, God has set eternity in your heart. And he has set his love upon you. And I tell you truly, again, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Did you notice the invitation today? Come unto me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the temple of God. And through it, we are saved. The body of Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. Do you hear it even when he drives out the money changers? Amen.